Hello, it's Alice here with another episode of Poetry Says. They are making a movie in my office or something. So you're going to get traffic noise and maybe some dog bark action here at home. I am very excited to share this interview with you, another one from Poetry Month. And I want to briefly introduce, because I really rambled last time, uh, briefly introduce you to Maddie Godfrey, who is a West Australian poet. Maddie describes himself as a writer, educator, and emotional feminist. Snap on that one, Maddie. Uh, If you know Maddie, you know that they are something of a force of nature. And if you don't know Maddie, after you've listened to this interview, you'll have um, a better idea of that. Listening back to this, I was just struck again by the energy and joy for poetry. Like Lockie, who I spoke with last week, this is another young writer who is just claiming space in poetry in this country. And they have been recognized for that fact as we get into as well. When I listened back, I I remembered the headspace I went into this interview with. And once again, I was faced with my own uh, growing sense of my own conservatism when it comes to particularly spoken word and performance poetry. Maddie talks here about the idea of scholarly work that we are perhaps meant to know, that we need to know before we can be considered real serious poets. And um, they point to button poetry as an early influence as well. And a friend asked me the other day, you know, what is up with performance poetry and spoken word poetry? Why do you keep making these, these, um, they didn't actually put it this way, but why do you keep making these illusions as if there's something to be explained here that you're not going to get into? And once again, I'm not going to get into it because I don't know how to properly answer this question. I feel like what I'm starting to realize, and this really got clarified for me through having the opportunity to talk to Lockie and to Maddie, is that my thoughts on this are ill-informed and come from a place of prejudice. Um, I have a set of assumptions and experiences with this type of poetry that I don't think are all that useful to share. I think I need to know more before I can say more. But what I can say is that it is just very energizing to talk with someone like Maddie who just clearly cares about poetry and is making poetry their life. That's gotta be a great thing. I feel like after these two conversations, I also have a better sense of the energy center of poetry that moves and finds a new home um, over time, and that it does this kind of moving and shifting regardless of whatever the countervailing conservatism might be. Yeah, I feel like it can't be stopped, and that is also a really good thing. So I ask a little bit about this to start with. I ask about this idea of whether poetry is having a resurgence at the moment. That's a word that I sometimes hear 
used by people talking about poetry in general. And the way Maddie puts it, I really, really love. They just say poetry is becoming more public. More people can name a poet these days than they could have maybe even 10 years ago. We also talk about Maddie's work as a teacher. We talk about the differences in what it is to be queer, queer and a poet now versus back in the day when I was, when I was, uh, could be described as such things. Um, and interestingly, Maddie also talks about isolation uh, in the context of being a poet, you know, how it can be lonely, how it can feel like you are the only person doing this kind of work. And I thought that was really interesting because that is in direct contrast to what John Kinsella said, John Kinsella also being a West Australian poet. Um, and John was saying, you know, I write in community, I'm connected to other poets all the time. Maddie doesn't necessarily line up with that view. And I thought that was interesting. And I've been wondering, is that a function of time and age? You know, John being that much older than Maddie, has John just had more time to to build those connections? Um, yeah, I don't know what it is, but I just, I just love that there was this like total contradiction between those two interviews and the ways that these two poets saw that particular issue. So I really hope that you enjoy this chat with Maddie. This is the second to last Poetry Month interview that I have banked up. Uh, there'll be one more maybe next week, maybe the week after. I think I'm coming up to episode 150, so I might do something a little bit um, different for that. But regardless, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this conversation. To start off with, I want to ask you about this word that I've been hearing off and on when people are talking about poetry at the moment, this word resurgence. Mm-hmm. Do you think poetry is actually having a resurgence right now or is it doing the same thing it's always been doing, just that people are noticing it for some reason? I think poetry is becoming more public in a lot of ways. I think like things like the celebrity poet or like the Instagram poet or these kind of uh, public versions of the poet are taking on this, like we've always had public poetry though. Like if you look back to things like bards, which, you know, I'm not a huge fan of, but like there have been ideas of the public poet, but now with the internet and visibility and all of these things, I just think a lot more people are able to tell you the name of a poet um, than they were maybe five years ago or 10 years ago. I don't, when I was in school, the only poets that I knew about were like the Gwen Harwoods and, you know, the capital R romantic poets. And these days when I go into schools, kids are like, oh, we love these poets we see on YouTube. We love these poets who are slam poets, you know, we love the Australian slam poets. Um, And I didn't have that when I was in school because there wasn't this idea of the public poet that was as within my reach as a kid. Yeah, right, because you're a teacher of creative writing as well. I really love this quote from you that you gave in another interview. You said, give yourself permission to have terrible output without it defining that you're terrible at what you do. (laughs) Um, I thought that's really, really useful advice. What 
excites you when your students hand something in for you to look at? Oh, I get really excited when I come across a poem that is so theirs. Like that is the best feeling as a teacher in the world is when someone gives you a poem and it just, it has their own voice, it has their own style and you feel like they're coming into themselves. And I think I've had the pleasure of working with students who I've had over a long period of time. And so at the beginning, you get a lot of the same poems. You get a lot of the, um, you can see who they're echoing, you can see who they've been reading. And I love that. I love when who we read comes into our work. I think that's actually quite exciting and shows kind of like a lineage, right? A lineage of reading and influence. But there's a point where some students take on their own poetics and they start to invent their own like poetic style, poetic tone. And for me, that's when it's really exciting. When I'm like, oh my goodness, this is a you poem. Like this is your work. And that's better for me than like, you know, there are moments where people hand in perfect, perfect sonnets, you know, and I'm like, oh, that's exciting. You know, you've ticked the box, but it's, it's nowhere near as exciting as someone experimenting with who they want to be and the kind of poetry they think needs to be in the world that isn't there yet. Does that make sense? Like, I just love it. That gets me, like, that gets me, you know, fist pumping while I'm marking or, like, happy dancing while I'm marking. Um, I'm, so, I'm so excitable about people finding things they love about their own work. Who do you think those people were for you that would have come through when you first started writing? You know, there's this idea that we, we have to have to copy before we can write our own stuff, you know, walk before we can run. Um, were there people like that for you, like guiding lights when you first started actually writing stuff down? Yeah, I was really influenced by performance poetry on the internet. So um, when I first started, I was a very big fan of this um, American YouTube channel called Button Poetry, um, which is still very, very popular and is like a specific style of performance poetry. It's kind of called the button style or the button slam style. And, um, and it's where a lot of students kind of do start because it's so accessible in the terms, if you probably search, you know, performance poetry, it probably comes up online. Um, it's very much based in an American style. It's almost a very specific uh, cadence and rhythm and, and pace even. Um, and there's a poet called Sarah Kay, who I just loved before I even started writing poetry. And I loved how she told stories and I loved how she um, how she curated and like really tightly sews these stories together in such a, such a poetically neat way. And I heard a lot of that in my early poems. And if I look back now, I realized that a lot of what I was doing was mimicking what I had seen on the internet or, or mimicking what I wanted to be, which was fine, was a stepping stone to to more poetic experiments. It is interesting to kind of look back at early stuff and go, wow, I was really trying very hard to, well, uh, that person's voice was just so strong in my work at that point. Like that's, it's kind of cool to see distance between that and where you are. In another interview, you talked about how accessible the poem is as a form of storytelling. And I wanted to ask about that too, because Talking about the button style, I think one of the elements there is the poem as a story. Does a poem have to tell a story? Nah. Um, a poem doesn't have to do anything. That's the thing. There's all this, like, 
there's all this really elevated chat about like a poem has to do this or a poem needs to contain this. And I feel some, I mean, maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just reached the point of like tired and angry, but I sometimes feel like uh, a poem can do what it wants. Like a poem can tell a story, a poem can tap dance, a poem can, you know, a poem can create a world where nothing happens except there is a world. I think this potential for the poem to do things is, is so endless. Um, and we keep finding that in new work and new poets coming out now where I read a book and I'm like, I didn't know a poem could do that. And I'm so excited to hear that it can. Uh, but where I start with like teaching and students is this idea of story, just because I think it's a really, it's a, it's a really good entry point, I think. When we talk about um, stories, right? Everyone knows a story. Like everyone has a story they love to tell at a dinner party. It's like they go to one when they're nervous, they can make people laugh with it. We all have stories we know or stories we love or stories we feel like we feel like we can share well. And the thing I love about a story and the word story is that it's often like an oral storytelling practice when we think about it. And when you say story, it seems like something that you can take hold of and shape how you want. And that's also how I think we should um, approach poems as, as things we want to share, but that we can take hold of, and we can shape in ways that we want to shape them. And they become part of us, just like our stories are also part of our repertoire <laughs> for how we engage with the world. I just think framing poems as stories is like a really good in for someone who feels like poetry is something they don't feel like they understand or something they don't feel like they have any ability to do, something they feel alienated by. Yeah. You tell a kid to write a story, they'll write a story. You tell a kid to write a poem, they'll freak out and tell you they can't do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seems likely. I can imagine that in a in a poetry classroom. I can imagine the poetry classroom itself being quite a scary place to walk into. Oh yeah, mm. absolutely. It also feels like a place that. Um, I mean, I, I still get this. You know, I love poetry. I work in poetry, and sometimes I work. In, I walk into a workshop, and I feel tiny. I feel like I don't. I don't remember off the top of my head all of these formal constraints and all of this history that I'm meant to know of all these, you know, specific poets who we consider scholarly. Um, and then I remember that um, it's okay to not know everything about poetry as long as you give yourself permission to listen and learn and also, yeah, be tiny. And also sometimes the things that make you feel tiny are institutions and systems and and things that we need to fight against with poetry and that poetry doesn't belong to systems or forms or rules oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to ask you about that in terms of queerness actually because you you wrote this fantastic poem called horoscope for my queer self two years ago <laughs> which i really really appreciated because it's a poem about anthony from queer eye among other I things him. yeah <laughs> i feel like the space between what it was to be queer in 1998 when i was in high school and what it is to be queer now in 2021 is like ocean size absolutely it's exciting and thrilling and occasionally terrifying how quickly the conversation is moving and I wonder given that speed whether there are areas of poetry that still feel off limits to you uh, as a younger person as a queer person 
you talked a little bit about institutions there. I guess I'm digging into that comment a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I do agree with you that queerness itself and being queer feels very different now than it has ever felt. And I, this keeps changing. I mean, I'm 20, how old am I? 25, I think. Yeah, I'm 25. And uh, I work with young queer kids and teenagers and trans kids and non-binary kids as well and and the way that they are experiencing their queerness is so different than I did when I was a teenager and that's kind of what that poem in Cordite the horoscope for your queer self one was about was this sense of how I feel like as a non-binary person and a queer person um, I'm constantly coming out again and again and again I feel like I have to come out every time I enter a room. I feel like I have to come out every time I enter a relationship or a friendship even. And um, each year, each even, you know, each six months, I feel like queerness means something different to me. It is constantly evolving um, in the public sphere and the private sphere. And it's something that I'm really grateful that I get to experience, that I like have the ability to find community and to put it in my work, like that I get to be a queer writer is a privilege, you know, that you can Google my name and it comes up that I am a queer person, I think is a privilege that I try to be really aware of because it's not something that is available to a lot of people or has been available historically, this like very public queerness. That doesn't mean that I'm like, I'm still employed, you know, I still get to enter classrooms. I still get these things. Um, but also then talking about how we talked about being small or talking about, you know, rooms where I have to feel small sometimes. First of all, yeah, I acknowledge those exist very differently for all different people. Like there are lots of rooms where people have to be small in order to be safe. And this is continually, and it's especially, I think, identifiable in the queer community where there are some places where, you know, looking a certain way makes me safer or makes me able to have more of a voice just something that I'm constantly trying to unpack. But I also think as a teacher and as a educator and as a lover of poetry, um, I'm really passionate about creating spaces that are expansive. You know, like you, you might walk into the poetry classroom feeling small or that you don't belong there, but it's my goal that everyone has the ability to grow and to expand and to be, um, to be like inconvenient and to be melodramatic and to be over-emotional if you're over-emotional that day, or to just be quiet. Like all these small inconveniences that we may consider part of ourselves or parts we have to hide. I feel like my poetry and also my work as an educator both try to tap into that and be like, yeah, I have a lot of feelings and I wanna feel them all really really vocally sometimes and I feel I want to give that permission to other people yeah I love that the permission to be inconvenient because I feel like when you turn up and even just state that you're a poet you're already just invoking a whole set of inconveniences for people I'm like yeah I'm a poet first of all like I'm a poet which people think some people will be inconvenienced by you know and then I'm like my pronouns are they them which is not an inconvenience to anyone just to be clear, but some people will obviously be thrown by it. Um, And then I'm like, and also I'm yelling about my body and, you know, all these things we don't talk about, like menstruation and uh, chronic illness and queerness and all of these things, like my angry emotional feminism. Um, And some people are like, whoa, but I, I don't think that's inconvenient. I think I just feel like it is sometimes. 
I don't want to skim over the fact that you won the Tom Collins Poetry Prize in February this year. Yeah. What does it feel like now that it's six months on looking back at that experience? It's been six months. Oh, this year has gone somewhere. It feels it feels weird. I'm I'm very proud of the work I do, but sometimes winning prizes or these kind of accolades sit very differently for me because um, I, it's an honor to win a prize. It's, a, it's great. I love, I love prizes. I love money. I'm very grateful for them and the way they allow me to continue to write. But in other ways, prizes are just prizes. You know, for me, a prize is a nice moment, but it doesn't feel like career sustaining. I find a lot more um, motivation and inspiration from actually making the work sometimes than getting recognized for the work. Like there is an adrenaline to writing a good poem and sitting down after and being like, damn, I did good today. (laughs) Whereas, Whereas it's a different kind of adrenaline and a different kind of feeling when you have the honor of winning something or being recognized. Um, The best things about the Tom Collins were that the award night was awesome. I was surrounded by a lot of people I love and I felt very loved and I felt very inspired by all of the poems that were shortlisted. Um, I also really liked the fact that um, it felt like a full circle because I wrote that poem during a residency and it was nice to have like an outcome that kind of came back like in a cyclical way. And also the judge, um, Caitlin Mayling, was a poet who I really like. Um, And so to have been judged by someone you like and whose work you really respect is also the coolest feeling. Um, Yeah. The Tom Collins Prize was really exciting to win, but also it did just feel like not the beginning of something, but the end of something. It felt like saying like, okay, cool. I've won that. That's awesome. And now I need to move on with new work and, and produce new stuff. Yeah. 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 I can imagine kind of like the closing of a chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I find it's really important as, um, as a poet, as someone who enters prizes to not get really dependent on prizes for uh, encouragement or for um, just I, I need to make sure there are things that motivate me and uh, keep me going and keep me writing that aren't prizes. Because as, we, as you know, there, there are beautiful poems that I've seen entered into prizes that haven't won. There's, you know, beautiful manuscripts that get produced that don't win anything. Um, and so I think I am really wary of being reliant on that kind of validation to keep me sustainable in my own practice and to keep me actually wanting to create and put work in the world. So I'm always a little bit hesitant about putting all my eggs in the in the prize basket. When I was like first started writing, I used to enter everything and I was just spending all my rent money on um, entry fees. <laughs> so then I just stopped. So yeah. Um, the thing with the Tom Collins as well, which I think is probably pretty relevant, is that I was very, very close to not entering. Like mm. I had this poem and I was like, I don't know if I want to because I just like, I was just like, I don't, I didn't feel I just prizes. I was like, no, oh, not another, not another rejection email. I like, I just didn't have the energy at that time. And a, a very good friend of mine was just like, nah, chuck it in. Like, just do it. Just chuck it in. It was very casual. Yeah. Um, and I think for me, that's the best 
that's like the good feeling where you're like not um, lying awake at night wondering when the judges will email you, which oh we've all had. Yes, we are. We are. I've definitely done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I also winning the cat muscat, sorry to like tangent, but winning the cat yeah. muscat in 2020 from Express Media was a different kind of moment as well in terms of like prizes and accolades, I guess, or um, recognition, I guess is the word, because that was a prize that led to uh, mentorships and it was like invested in a, in a manuscript and it was about working towards something. And, and more than that, it wasn't for a body of work that I had ready. It was this idea of the Cat Muscat Fellowship was about nurturing um, my work as like a young feminist and an underrepresented gender of um, writer and editor. Um, and for me, that's the kind of prize where it was like the beginning of something and that, um, that prize gave me so much um, direction in my writing. It gave me so much clarity and it gave me a real sense of self um, in the Australian literary scene that I didn't have in any sense of the word before. Um, so yeah, there are multiple, there are different types of prizes. The Tom Collins felt like an end. The Cat Musket felt like a beginning of something and they're both really important, but also they also are, you know, just prizes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I just have one last question. Question about absences. What do you wish more people would talk about in Australian poetry? Because I feel like there are certain beats that we tend to hit when we talk about poetry in this country. I wonder if there are things that you're aware of that are happening that nobody talks about or angles that are underexplored. It's sort of a weird one because it's like point to something invisible. But um. <laughs> there, there are two thoughts that I have. And one is, one is something that I feel like I've been, you know, talking about in passenger seats for my whole life, for my whole career, which is that I, I want poetry to be talked about in relation to joy more. I think so much poetry, and this may also come from coming from a slam background or a performance background, I think so much poetry and discourse around poetry is about the poet as resilient, the poet as um, surviving or overcoming or poetry as a way of dealing with the negativities in life. And, and that is so fair, but I don't think we talk about the joy enough you know, the joy in the poem, the way that a poem is a way of preserving and cataloging and like freeze framing joy. And uh, there is so much joy and uh, like dancing and movement and uh, just like absolute lightheartedness possible in poetry. There is so much silliness available in poetry and so much playfulness in poetry. And I do feel like constantly talking about poetry as a resilient act uh, negates this this ability to also talk about joy and surrender and all these things that I I think are so tightly woven into my own love and my own pursuit of poetry and also the poetry that I love to read. Um, yeah, that's something. It means a lot to me because we can't always like poets can't always be expected to be using poetry to deal with stuff. Sometimes I just want to write a poem because I like I love burritos, you know. I love them. Um, <laughs> and the other thing, which I do think gets talked about, but I think is also quite relevant and also crucial is that there's a certain um, unspeakable isolation to being a poet sometimes. 
And it can be really hard to explain and it can be quite difficult to find words for the way that seeing the world through a certain lens or by trying to catalogue the world or even the quiet required to experience that poetic understanding of things around you can also lead to isolation. So this month or last on the 30th of June, um, I had three poems published in Westerly, um, Westerly 66.1. And it's from a mid-career fellowship that I did with them. And I got to publish like a series of poems called Longing in Three Ways. Um, And the poems themselves are like prose poems that have gaps in them. So the lines are reaching for each other. It's like the act of reaching as intrinsic to longing and specifically queer longing and yearning. Uh, I've also written a blog that went up yesterday, which is about prose poems with dance breaks, (laughs) which is very on brand to what we've been talking about. Um, I'll read the second one, which is called Every Time I Buy Fruit, It Turns Rotten, Forgotten in the Bowl. There was a tattoo between your shoulder blades that I wanted to press my face against. The way older women check for ripeness before adding mangoes to their basket. I thought I was straight until I saw you on a staircase suddenly. I was a hormonal boy fidgeting in his ill-fitting suit jacket. And you were a slow motion announcement that cliches can still be beautiful. Let the butterflies enter the stomach. Let the sunrise arrive again. My jaw, a predictable apple falling into your palm. I wanted to tangle my ambition around your schedule, argue about soaking dishes instead of scrubbing them often. My infatuation looks like a strange willingness to wear an apron, to enact the domesticity I've spent my youth resisting. Yes, I will build you a treehouse. Yes. I will bake you a roast dinner basted in honey. Yes, I will scrub a floor and darn a sock. Yes, I will assure you that your shoulders make sense. Yes, I will learn to be the man and the woman you deserve. The last time I saw you, we held hands in a bar where even the vodka bottles paused mid-pour. Years later, Your chat bubble calls me baby, still, we will never share a kitchen counter.